This is Back to Excitement with your hosts, Arvind and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 139. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fool. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooliman? I'm good. How about yourself? I can't complain. Doing pretty well. Um, so we have, I guess, a bit of a grab bag of things to discuss today. Yes. We're going to have three topics that are kind of disparate, but we just figured we'd throw something together. And the first one is the one that we have been asked about the most in the last couple of weeks, and that I think a lot of people are discussing in Leafland, which is what is wrong with the Toronto Maple Leafs power play? Why does it suck so much ass? Right. So at the start of the year, the Leafs had an absolutely gangbusters power play. And we kind of criticized what the Leafs were doing on the power play very early on. We were like, okay, why, why are we doing this, you know, why are we doing this thing where we're not playing our four best players who we're paying $40 million mm-hmm. to, to just play a huge amount of the power play? But it, and then it worked. And then we're like, okay, it looks like we're, maybe we're done. Mm-hmm. Right? And now it's not working. Yes. And the takeaway here is that we should never doubt ourselves ever again. But I also don't exactly. know that overloading the first unit is the only solution to the problem. Or it's, you know, going to be enough to fix it. Because it feels like there's a lot going on here. Now, since March right. 1st, the Leafs are 28th in the NHL at goals rate 5v4. That's pretty bad in a 31-team league. Now, they're only 10th in expected goals for, and they're 5th in scoring chances for. Those numbers are maybe not as illuminating at 5v4 compared to how they are at even strength because you have so much more control over how things should be set up on the power play that Royal Road passes pre-shot movement. Those things matter more. And the Leafs obviously prioritize that Royal Road pass from Marner to Matthews as their best weapon when they can do it. And defenses know this. So I'm not necessarily saying that Everything is actually just fine, and they will soon be back in the top five where their scoring chance totals are. That said, I think as a starting point, we have to say a certain amount of bad luck has probably been stacked on whatever's going wrong with it on a core level. Certainly to some extent, mm-hmm. um, but it's a little unsatisfying to kind of just pin this at the feet of bad luck, right? Especially because, as we've talked about many times this season... The Leafs' success or failure in this year is going to be determined on what happens in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. If they're facing a team like Montreal, which seems like it's the most likely option at this point, you know, Montreal is arguably a better 5-on-5 five five team than the Leafs. The Leafs will need to win special teams to beat Montreal. Mm-hmm. That's a huge part of how they should, like, that's a huge part of the theory of how they win. So you want to, you know, recognizing that luck does play a factor, you want to inoculate yourself with, to, to luck to the, whatever extent possible, mm-hmm. right? And it's not clear that the Leafs' current tactics are doing that. And, you know, Keith has gone a kind of full mad scientist on this sort of thing. Uh, and it, it's including changes today where I think we're going back to a loaded-up top unit of the four, four, four major forwards and riding. Yes, and so to be clear, we're recording this in advance of Sunday's game against the Vancouver Canucks. If the loaded-up unit scores it proves that we were right and if it doesn't score it proves that you need a larger sample size so just want to say that yep. as a preface mm-hmm. so the i mean the fundamental issue 
that I see with this unit at times is that the net front is where things go to die. Which is kind of the opposite um, of what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Joe Thornton, Joe Thornton has played there a little bit. He's also been in the bumper, and he just hasn't really been useful as a bumper. It's a bit weird to put him in the bumper, because I feel like when you're the bumper, you're much more of a shot threat than a pass threat. Mm-hmm. Right? I, um, Wayne Simmons has been the other guy playing that front. Zach Hyman has done it a little bit. My issue with all of those players, uh, not Thornton when he plays net front, but Simmons and, and Hyman, um, is that they're kind of brute forcers when it comes to the net front. They, they get the puck, they jam mm-hmm. it in, right? And they're not bad at that by any means. Hyman certainly is very good at it. Simmons, you know, for a large part of his career was among the best in the world at doing exactly that, even if he, he's come down a bit. But neither are plus passers. Right. Um, one of the things I think worked really well last year when we had William Nylander there is that you had a guy who was a skilled finisher in tight but also had the ability to kind of step back and make a saucer pass across the crease to someone cheating back door mm-hmm. right or you had a guy who could go between the legs and, and, and roof it th- things like that um, when Sean Ferris and Olivia Lynn were on this pod uh, you know they were the people who did a really deep dive into the Leafs last year they kind of identified putting Nylander there as a huge hugely important factor to the Leafs' power play heating up over the course of last season because his passing unlocked another avenue to get the puck to Austin Matthews. Yeah, one of the great things about Nylander in that role is that he's not just, as you said, uh, a basher. He's not just going to try and score a goal by six feet in a cloud of slush. He's going to know when there's an opportunity to step out or behind the net and to use sort of a wider area of space to open up a passing lane that maybe isn't going to be anticipated. And I hesitate to boil it down this much, but I do think that the predictability of the Leafs' power play is really the problem. If you're trying to defend against the Leafs' power play, what do you do? You want a relatively tight box. You want to, at all costs, avoid that Royal Road pass going to Austin Matthews that he can one-time, because then you're dead. And you kind of concede a whole lot of other stuff in preference to allowing that one shot to happen. And so I think a lot of what we've seen is teams know what the big weapon is. And then the question is, what's going to be the secondary weapon? How are you going to burn them if they sell out to block that first threat? And for a team with as much offensive talent as the Leafs have, it's been frustrating watching them fail to consistently develop that second threat. And I I do think the use of William Nylander is one of the first steps to bringing that in. Right, and with Tavares playing kind of towards the middle, there's also good um, handedness synergy, mm-hmm. right? Where Tavares, uh, if, if the puck is primarily uh, with, or if the puck is, is on Nylander's stick, he plays kind of the, the, the left side of the, of, the, of the net front, so his forehand is in the middle of the ice. Um, it, it's a, it, there's a good forehand-to-forehand one-time pass available, essentially. Mm-hmm. So there are a few things to try there. There's another thing that I think that I would like to see more of, which is the high tip. You know, using the bumper to get their stick on a floating wrister from the top of the the zone. Uh, Nazem Kadri used to do this to great effect at times. And one of the things that I like about it is that it gives you something unpredictable to hit the 
penalty killers with when they are covering the center of the zone. So if they're going to say, okay, our priority is block that Royal Road pass, be there in the crease, tie up sticks, all that stuff, which is all sensible, like that's good defense, but the high tip is sort of a way around that because the bumper is usually playing high enough that they're not properly covered or can get some space, and yet it's an unpredictable shot that changes direction on you. And it introduces some chaos into the proceedings. And if it throws everyone off a little bit, at least it gives the people who are in the net front something to hack at on the rebound. Um, I've also seen some people suggest, like, look, maybe go a little classic and bring back the big booming point shot. Uh, fond memories of Brian McCabe back in the old days, or any number of other players. And I've heard some people even reference Jake Muzzin for this job because he does have a slapper on him. I'm less sure that that's useful in the modern NHL, to be honest with you. Um, the number one thing I want from my point mm-hmm. guy is mobility, to be honest. And that's what Morgan Riley brings in spades, and of course Jake Muzzin doesn't. Um, for all his many gifts, it's just not something that's really in his toolbox. And, and so I do think that, as frustrating as the stretch has been, Morgan Riley's assets of holding the line, mobility... Uh, capacity to keep the puck moving when the Leafs are trying to set up a passing play. All that stuff is still worthwhile. And I, I wouldn't want to trade it for a, a big cannon that is still ultimately kind of stationary. Um, now that said, there's also uh, a related issue here, which is just all of the things that we've said are for when you get set up. You still have to gain the zone. Right. And... And this yeah. is, sorry, inter- this is one of those things that's very hard, that isn't really tracked in a uniform way across the league that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So when the power play isn't going well, you often feel like, oh, God, these guys just can't get set up mm-hmm. at all, right? And occasionally, you know, that happens. My general thought is that that happens to basically every team. Uh, I'm not sure if the Leafs are particularly good or particularly bad at getting set up, but there's, there's absolutely, you know, power plays and even two, three, four power play stretches where it just feels like we don't even get in the zone. And nothing is more infuriating than that. Yes, because you're obviously no threat whatsoever. And the ideal situation for the defense is we literally stop you at the blue line when you are no threat at all. Um, William Nylander has been on the COVID list for the past week due to a contact with a test. Um, So his absence for a little bit, I don't think helped because he's one of the better zone entry players. That said, this problem predates his absence. Absolutely. A big clouding thing here is that power plays are, by definition, small sample. You know, you get, let's say, three or four of them a night. That's six or eight minutes on the power play, maybe. And that's certainly enough to matter. I'm not denigrating the importance of it, but I'm also saying that's well within the realm where you can get a certain amount of shit happens going on. And I do think that while we talk about all of these things that are maybe not working as well as we would like. If the Leafs just keep doing what they're doing, they will get better, I am convinced. The puck will go in a certain percentage of the time, most likely. Uh, the just question is, is it enough to get back to being a real strength the way that it has been and should be? And, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a little bit less yeah, like, sure of that. Ab- mm-hmm. Average is not okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in this case. This, this should be a strong suit. And... At the start of the season, it was beyond a strong suit. It was a totally unsustainable, unstoppable weapon. But I think the Leafs can certainly reasonably expect to ice a power play that scores 
pushing 25% of the time, give or take. And that's high, but that's the caliber of player that they have and that they are employing. Um, right. And and I, we should note that at the start of the year, the Leafs were, you know, off the charts good in terms of generating chances on the power play, not just goals. Like, the goals were also incredible. But there was... it. It was unsustainable, but still very good. Right. Like the, the the process, still still elite, actually, still the best in the league. And as you've mentioned, you know, you said we're now in the, over the past month or so, month and a bit, we're tenth in expected goals and fifth in scoring chances. That's no longer elite, even if you buy into those measures as a true test of how effective a power play is at creating good cho- uh, good shots. Right. So, like, even though we've said, yeah, some of this is probably luck. Like, the Leafs really to be as good as they can and should and we want them to be need to be you know top three in the league essentially like they need uh, at, at creating chances always more or less like that that's that's one of the main ideas behind spending 40 million on four forwards yeah right I, I know i harp on that a lot but that that matters and i do think you know i think people are prone to blaming coaches for pretty much everything because coaches are there to be blamed after all and manny malhotra is taking a certain amount of heat for the structure of the power play because that's his responsibility At the same time, it's hard not to feel like this is a consequence of the Leafs being in a division that plays each other all the goddamn time. And so you have six opponents who keep playing the Leafs, who have probably been burned by the Leafs' power play in the early going of the season, who are scouting and preparing for it. And when you are pre-scouting the Leafs, or at least when you were early in the year, power play was going to be a huge priority because they were wiping teams off the map just through 5v4. And so I think there is a real case that what we're seeing is the result of counter moves by coaches saying, okay, here is how you defend the Toronto power play. And it's incumbent on Keith and Mahotra to have a response to that. You know, this is kind of the classic case of adjustments that you're talking about. And they have tried things. Um, you know, splitting the units, moving players around, trying different guys on the net front. And it hasn't seemed to really have the impact that we would hope. It really seems like the Leafs have a terrific first option that everyone knows about. And now the issue is innovating with those other options to get uh, less predictable. I should add Mm -hmm. also, this has been clouded a little bit by Austin Matthews sort of nagging wrist issues which have at times moved him out of the spot where he's most effective. But that's just one little piece. Yes. Now, there's also a related issue. I mentioned a couple guys who are on the power play, mm. uh, Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons. And I guess some of the issues that, that the Leafs have had on the power play with, with their spots as well, where they're not necessarily adding a whole lot right now, whether that's by coaching or uh, through their play. And, you know, it raises the larger question of, how are they doing generally? Because they have both been criticized recently. Mm-hmm. I think not unjustifiably because their play at even strength even also has, you know, not been a little good. Not been that good. Sorry. Yeah. And so that's the second topic that we're looking at, which is are Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons washed for lack of a more elegant term? Yeah, I, I spent, you know, 30 seconds couching it, trying to be polite. And you're just like... <laughs> Are these guys shit now? <laughs> this is what happens when I do the notes early. Uh, yeah, so when we got Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons, and this is true of several moves of Kyle Dubas, 
at least part of the value is implicitly playoffs, wisdom, intangibles. The team as a whole, notwithstanding a little bit of a recent swoon this week, is doing quite well. The playoffs have not started yet. Some of the things that these signings were to be graded on either haven't happened yet or are less directly connected to their individual stats. So I want to kind of hedge that and say, okay, maybe they are doing some things that are beyond our capacity to measure. And it's worth noting, their on-ice stats are still pretty respectable in both cases. Now, the team is really good uh, in most of these stats, and maybe that's been a little underplayed lately, I feel like. We, we've said this on a few pods now, but the Leafs have actually been looking pretty good as a 5v5 team for a while now. Um, looking very good. And so everyone's stats have started to improve. But Thornton's are great. Uh, at least he leaves the team in Corsi. He's less good than expected goals, but still good. And Simmons is solidly in the good zone in pretty much everything, except neither of them is producing very much anymore. And the eye test suggests that that's not just misfortune. And that's a little unfortunate, because I think we both like them. You know, they were touted signings for the, the veteran savvy that they can bring, and they both still have skills, but they are less effective now. So starting with Joe Thornton, we have Zach Hyman, the reemergent Alex Galchenyuk, and then the newly acquired Nick Foligno will be arriving soon. Two of those three guys should pretty much always be in the top two left wing slots, it seems like, ahead of Joe Thornton. I don't really see a case to put him there right now over any of them. Even though he's worked decently well with Matthews and Marner early in the year. And so, you get into a, a bit of a weird top six or bust problem with Joe Thornton at this stage of his career. Because the skills that he has left are premier passing, playmaking, vision. A certain amount of puck protection in the offensive zone. He's not really going to employ those to great effect when the guy he's passing to is, I don't know, Riley Nash or Pierre Engvall. And if he's getting bumped down that low and isn't maybe the most effective option in that role, you start to wonder where he fits in the lineup, period. And that's a fraught question. You don't want to scratch Joe Thornton, who came here to win a cup, and who is widely respected, and who is a Hall of Fame caliber player, and you want to have some deference to his ego. Uh, this feels like a little bit of an echo of the thing that we had with Patrick Marlowe in his last year with the Leafs. Absolutely. Um, something I saw Kevin Papetti mention at the start of the year, um, and he was on board with the Thornton and Simmons signings, as I think a lot of people mm -hmm. were. But one of the things he mentioned is that like, if either of them are not particularly good, it's kind of difficult to scratch them as opposed to, say, Pierre Engvall. Right. So there is a, a dressing room issue, a hierarchy issue, an ego issue that has to be accommodated here. And it's one that Kyle Dubas should have been aware of, frankly, when he made these signings. And it's okay, but it is something that you have to kind of account for. And so I think in the management of Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons, you have to accept that you need to position them for the playoffs, and that's maybe how you have to approach it. I'm thinking of, okay, we know that you're going to be a big part of this team, or a part of this team at least. You're going to appear in the playoff games, but if 
these guys are struggling with fatigue or nagging injuries or anything like that, it doesn't feel like there's a great reason for them to be playing every single day if it can be avoided. You know, if you can shuffle in Adam Brooks or Nick Robertson or whoever else um, for the time being. Now, it obviously gets a little bit fraught to deal with all the cap implications there. But still, I I do think that when the Leafs are going to be playing probably every other day, give or take, for a month, and then into the playoffs, if you can rest them, now is the time. And... I sort of am resigned to the fact that, like, look, we, we got these guys. These are status guys. The The reasons that we acquired them involve a certain amount of intangibles or things that I can't measure. Okay. It's just... We also do want to maximize their on-ice contributions. And lately, they've both basically stopped producing and have looked right. a little bit of a step behind. Yes. I mean... Look, points can dry up, especially when you're not, when you're playing in the bottom six of a top six, bottom six team. Right. So it, there's, you know, whenever we criticize someone for this, and to some extent, it's always because they're not producing, right? Otherwise, like if, if they're not playing well and pucks are still going in, well, they're still it's still working. We're like less likely to actually really criticize them. But you know, in the in the case that we're criticizing, there's, there's always an element of bad luck, but it's also you know, we we can't lay everything at the feet of that. We can't lay everything at the feet of, okay, you know, he has a low shooting percentage or whatever. It, it's, he, he, they're not necessarily doing things beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a fundamental problem. It really just seems like plays are dying on their stick at times, which is, you know, the most eye-testy of eye-testy observations. Yes, but some of that is what we have to go on. And the thing about the eye-test is that it's often used to make excuses or to just discard the statistical results. At the same time, you know, they're not scoring, and so that is a certain amount of proof is in the pudding uh, going on with that. I I do think that if you honestly make the healthy Leafs lineup with all the forwards that the Leafs should have available um, come game one of the playoffs... I don't think Joe Thornton or Wayne Simmons are in the top nine. And no. the question is, if they're on the fourth line, is that worth it? Right. I mean, it, it also depends on what the fourth line is. If you, if you go if you go Simmons, Spezza, Thornton as this kind of offensive fourth line with Spezza probably being the most effective of the three at this point, rolling back the clock, it's, you know, maybe that's something that, that can work. But then you need the third line really to... Uh, be able to take on situational defensive zone shifts if you uh, defensive zone starts if you don't want um, you know the fourth line doing that. In any case, we'll probably want the third line to at least take a little bit of top six action away from either one of the top two lines and hope to saw off um, better than even on that trade off. Um, so it puts a lot on the third line. And then okay, what's the third line going to be? Is it going to be Felino, Kerfoot, Engball, or something? Yeah, or Riley Nash um, or, or McKayev's It has to be yeah. in there. So, you know, there's a mess of people there. And then, you know, what of Riley Nash? Uh, granted, he's not going to be playing to the playoffs anyways. But, uh, yeah, it, there, there's there's knock-on effects to that, right? And generally speaking, you don't want to contort your team to fit a particular fourth line. Exactly. That's the thing that concerns me is if you are sheltering your fourth line or using them in an offensive manner when they're clearly not 
that great offensively either, or they wouldn't be a fourth line. Uh, that seems to me like a bit of a, uh, a warping of how you ought to be playing players, especially in games that really matter. You know, it's just a, a questionable priority. And I do hope that in the service of Thornton and Simmons' egos, we don't end up icing a worse team or playing a worse forward lineup. Uh, out of deference, you know, to their feelings. And to be clear, I don't know how they feel about it. I'm sure their competitors, they want to believe that they're still their best, still contributing at a high level. Maybe they're also great team guys who say, look, just, you know, throw me in where you can make space and I'll be there. And there is the clouding issue. And I think Kyle Dubas is aware of this. I mean, I know he's aware of this. He's referenced it in conversations. That there are going to be injuries, probably. And... Log jams at forward sometimes get resolved because certain players just aren't available. And the Leafs have made a conscious decision to acquire players at every position to improve that depth in the event of an injury. You know, they have David Riddich as their third goalie. They have Ben Hutton coming in as a seventh defenseman. And we've just talked about the forward log jam where they clearly have more than 12 players ready to go. Right. At any... The, the, um, the Leafs have this issue now. Well, I guess it's not so much of an issue because the, the roster limits have, have disappeared, correct? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's. Um, do they get the whole team under the cap at this point? Yeah, but like, you know, it, in a world where the Leafs wave basically anyone remotely close to the roster, they're getting claimed. Like, mm-hmm. There's a lot of NHL-level players on this roster. Yeah, and I don't think Jason Spezza clears again, for the record. <laughs> I think that, you know... I think a team would genuinely be spiteful enough, and I'm not saying this is a bad, like, wrong on their part, but they would generally be spiteful enough to say, okay, I don't care if you're not reporting here. Fuck you, Toronto. You're not getting your, your fourth-line center who's scoring at insane rates. If you're any of Montreal, Winnipeg, and Edmonton, I, I don't see how you don't do that. I mean, now you're violating the code, and maybe you worry about some sort of knock-on effects in your relation with other GMs. But if you're acting to try and improve your chances, absolutely throw a, sm- a spoke in Toronto's tires. Mm-hmm. You know? but uh... 100%. Anyway, so that's a uh, uh, kind of a clouding issue there. And so you do wonder, how does Sheldon Keefe see this Game 1 lineup shaking out? Is what I wonder. You know, if you gave him truth serum and you think, okay, how do you really want to do this? How do you see Nick Foligno being incorporated? And where do you see Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons going? And... I do find myself thinking, okay, the first priority has to be to have everyone in the best possible shape. And I'm inclined to think that Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons especially need some time to to recover or just to to be the healthiest version of themselves. You know, they may not even be injured per se, although they've both had injuries this year. It's just a matter of, by this point in the season, you are not 100%. Nobody is. And so if you can get to a closer approximation of that, maybe they can get back to a level where we're not worrying about their play on the fourth line anymore. The other thing that, the other complicating factor, this relates to the first thing we talked about, if the Leafs do decide to go with a loaded up power play, well, that also comes with playing that top power play a minute 30. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, okay, Simmons and Thornton are essentially shoo-ins for the, the remaining power play spots, but if they're getting 30 seconds, well, maybe their power play utility is not as big of a reason to keep them in as opposed to a guy like Riley Nash. Yes. And, you know, on a second power play unit that barely appears, there are all sorts of clouding issues of you probably only show up 
if the first power play is tired for whatever reason, or if they got knocked out of the zone, and now you're regrouping on the rush. Like, they haven't been set up for the whole two minutes. And so you have to gain the zone again, and there's that whole problem. And you wonder about assembling a unit that's even going to achieve all that much. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be 30 seconds in zone, more likely. Exactly. If it were, they would be, you know, probably more effective. But when you have guys like Thornton and Simmons, who are maybe not as good at that at this point in their careers, it's another issue of someone has to carry that second unit to get it to do anything before their skills can be of much use. Yeah, so it's... Not an easy situation, mm-hmm. I think, to manage from a personality standpoint and even an on-ice standpoint. Like, there's no obvious answer. Yeah, and there's... Because to some extent, it's yeah. just, okay, these guys need to play a bit better. Yeah, and uh, that's not a very useful prescription, but that's kind of what we have at this point. And Right, I mean, I'm sure the, coach, the coaching staff has hopefully <laughs> pinpointed specific things of, you know, okay, maybe try X, Y, Z, do this, do that you know let's try a different setup a different idea anything from afar it's it's harder to do that right and you know i mean what's the number one thing that joe thornton could do to improve his game a time machine he's 41 years old it's just (laughs) not easy it's exceptionally rare to be an effective forward at age 41 and there's only so much to go around that you know i think of this this is an nba thing But uh, John Hollinger, who writes for The Athletic, he was talking about the NBA's buyout market. And the NBA has a whole thing with buyouts where often players who were on very expensive deals can get bought out in the middle of the year and then sign for cheap with a contender. And he was talking about the perils of those acquisitions because they're often big name guys, often sort of on the downslope of their careers, but you sign them and they're a big deal and you have to play them once you get them out of deference to the locker room and everything else. I think that there's an, an echo of that problem here where when you get these status guys, there is a bit of a payback in that you have to respect the status they bring, and that sometimes means playing them higher or more than you would if you were sort of a cold-eyed rational analyst of who's playing the best right now. It's part and parcel with the um, locker room stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like. Yeah, okay, if you're, if you're telling me these guys have a big effect in the locker room and that, you know, they set the culture of the team and help everyone else, sure, I, I can accept that. But you also have to accept that we're, we then are forced to make sacrifices towards that locker room if, if they're not playing well. Because, you know, players talk and, play, you know, if, if there's a guy everyone loves who has a long-respected career and you start sitting him, players probably don't like that. And the, that player won't like that. Mm-hmm. And that has an impact too. So, you know, it, it does distort your roster construction to some extent. Now, that doesn't mean it's never worth it. Um, but, you know, if, if you're accepting one side of that bargain, you're also accepting the other. Yeah, I also say there is a general rule in pretty much every sports dressing room that your status is approximately associated with how important you are to the team. And... As much as dressing room guys, guys like Joe Thornton and stuff like that, have credibility because of the careers that they've had previously. If you're being scratched and, you know, it's a, it's a tough playoff series and you're sort of shooting around at, at practice, you may not have the same level of dressing room credibility or impact 
that you might hope. You know, one by definition, if you're scratched, you know, you're not in there with the guys at the second intermission saying, okay, let's, uh, let's rally and let's go out there and get them. You know, at most you're, you're saying that in a suit. So I do wonder how much we're willing to chase all those intangible things. There, there is one other point that I just wanted to, to emphasize, and it really ties in more to the trades that Caldubas made, you know, Riley Nash and Ben Hutton, and especially Nick Felino, is that he's embraced that this team is going to be judged on its playoff performance. He's correct, like that was going to be true regardless, but he's made acquisitions with an eye to the playoffs are different from the regular season, and we need whatever the playoff thing is, and we're going to measure up to that test. So... I don't know how Thornton and Simmons are going to be factored into that, but it's clearly something that the management group is thinking about as a big priority that like, it's not enough just to be a good regular season team. And it is a different thing in the playoffs. Maybe when Thornton and Simmons will turn out to be more helpful. I don't know. Yeah. So there's uh, one other thing we really wanted to, I think, chat about today. Mm -hmm. Uh, one note I want to mention, I actually got a couple requests to talk about new look lease lines combinations with all the trade acquisitions in. Uh, I think we could postpone that to a, a following week because we want to see some of them first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I want to, to address that. I should have done that uh, more from the start. But the last thing we wanted to talk about is um, a man very near and dear to our heart mm-hmm. and whether he will stay in our lives. Yes. And, of course, that is Zach Hyman. So... It's no secret that Zach Hyman has had probably his best year as a as a pro. He's been phenomenal um, this season. You could argue he's been the the Leafs' second best winger after Mitch Marner. Um, earlier this year, I kind of scoffed at the idea, but um, saying that it was it was Neander because Neander was doing pr- almost as much as Hyman at even strength and a lot more on the power play. Well, with the power play scuffling and Neander's absence and yada yada yada. Long story short, we don't need to relitigate that, but. Hyman's been very, very, very good, and you can argue better than any any winger on the list besides Mitch Martin. Yeah, he's been outstanding. We've talked about before, he's shown a growth in his skill set, ability to develop offensively uh, later in his career than we generally expected. He's driven lines um, or helped drive them. That didn't seem to have a lot going for them. Like, you know, him and Engvall and Mikhaev, for example. That's not a line that I would have expected to be successful in a top nine role. No, and and it's a line where we kind of, I think, quite reasonably attribute a lot of their success to Zach Hyman. Yes. Most of the offensive talent there is retained in Zach Hyman's hands. And three or four years ago, when he was considered the most stone-handsed man who ever lived, aside from Michael Grabner, that would have seemed crazy. So he's really developed. He's essential. He brings an element that the team wants. He's a power forward kind of type for real now. He's a legitimate top sixer. I think the Leafs are quite conscious that there are a lot of things that work better because they have Zach Hyman on their team. And Elliot Friedman has indicated that one of the reasons that the Leafs prioritized rentals this year at the trade deadline, and again, Felino, Nash, Hutton, Riddich, all expiring. So they're all only here for this playoff run. Uh, One of the reasons that they did that, as opposed to getting guys with more term, as they've done in the past, 
is because they anticipate having to resign Zach Hyman. And there's also the Seattle expansion draft, which kind of clouds this picture too. But they're thinking about it. And they need to ask, is this the best move for the team going forward? It's not an easy question to answer, to be honest. Right. So there's... The, the standard school of thought on this, standard kind of analytical school of thought, is you've paid your stars. Your stars are the ones who elevate people. Why are you going to pay a mid-range but not elite player a lot of money to his declining years? Right? This is the exact reason you have stars, so you don't have to pay those players. Yes. And I want to emphasize here, this isn't fun to, to like talk about, but it's because it's true. The worst deals that everyone makes fun of for years to come are for guys in their late 20s who were good mid-level-ish players who got paid a middle-class amount of money into their 30s. Like, look at the Milan Lucic contract, and everyone makes fun of that for all sorts of good reasons. Milan Lucic in his prime was a great player, and he was terrifying. But he wasn't a superstar, and he declined hard. Louis Erickson? Yeah. Franz Nielsen, great two-way center. James Neal? Yeah. All of these guys... We're good players, and they've turned into punchlines, and I really do want to emphasize that even if you're an analytics-minded person, the contracts may have been obviously a huge downside risk from the day they were signed, but the players were good at that moment. Um, Louis Erickson, actually, is maybe more debatable. He was already declining, but that's the, the thing here. And you look at Zach Hyman, you think he plays a hard-nosed style of play. He's turning 29 in June. And it's not that hard to see a future where you are regretting the last two, three, four years of a contract you give to Zach Hyman now. That is, is too much. And we just talked about um, some of the issues that come with a guy that everyone loves and who used to be really good now not being able to play at the same level. That's for Joe Thornton making 700k and Wayne Simmons making 1.5. Zach Hyman's going to get a hell of a lot more money than that. And so right. he, this is a risk. And I think that there is a real temptation to just say, okay, we love the player so much. He's so good and so useful, all of which is true. Just write him a blank check or, you know, give him whatever term he wants. That's not a lossless decision. That's not an easy decision to make. It's interesting because, you know, with, with the Leafs' lines this year, there are two high-end forward lines. One line has had um, essentially Thornton and Hyman on it. That's Matthews Marner, right? Those have been their two line mates. Mm-hmm. And then Tavares and have have had kind of everyone else. And there's an interesting argument there to be made for kind of the certainty that you ob- obtain when you decide to pay someone like Zach Hyman. Because, okay, so you pay Zach Hyman. Your first line, if you want if you want Hyman there, is going to be good. At least prob- almost certainly for next year, almost certainly for the year after, a bit if you're, you know, thereafter. Um, because, you know, we just always have more uncertainty as, as time goes forward. But, you know, you, c- you can set your watch to that line. If you decide to go with the, you know, shotgun approach of, I'm going to, you know get five guys more or less making a million dollars and we're going to try it out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not dumb in of itself either. And you could say this year for the Leafs, it's actually eventually worked, at least at the time where it's important. The Leafs have stumbled upon Alex Galchenyuk. He has been unequivocally very good in his time with Toronto, with, with Tavares and Nylander. Mm-hmm. 
that pairing has been good. Galchenyuk is is still a flawed player. Uh, There's a really interesting article, really good article um, by Justin Bourne at, at Sportsnet that talked about some of the, um, I guess, less visible parts of Galchenyuk's game that are sometimes lacking, sometimes just decision-making on the defensive side when in the offensive zone. And they're not motor issues. They're, they're play conception issues and positioning, right? And you know, Galchenyuk has a reputation as someone who's bad defensive. This is a really great article to exemplify you know, some of the habits that may result in him being seen as bad defensively. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but putting that aside, the Leafs have found this guy who works and he's making very, very little. Right. And now they had more money to spend elsewhere. They managed to coax good production out of a, a player who's not making very much money. And part of that is because he's in a system and in a situation where he has John Tavares and William Nylander next to him. And that makes a lot of players look good. At the same time, doesn't make everyone look good. Didn't make Jimmy Vesey look good. Yeah, or Ilya right? Mikheyev. not untalented. Yeah. Right? So there, it, it can work, but you, you absolutely are running a risk by you know, playing the odds. It's, it's the same way people say, you know, don't pay for a goalie. Um, cycle guys in. And it's like, well, you can, but there's also a chance that you roll snake eyes. Yes, and we all know how painful that can be. And to be clear, if you give Zach Hyman a, a respectable, strong contract now of the kind that I expect he can get, you are going to be playing that game except at every other position, basically. You know, instead of cycling all this grab bag of guys in at first line left wing, you're cycling them in on the third line or at 1B goaltender behind Jack Campbell. And your long-term picture is iffier, especially as you contemplate whether you want to resign Morgan Riley. So either way, there is a squeeze coming because Zach Hyman has been underpaid up to now. And you're either going to pay him more in line with what he brings or you're going to let him go and pay some people who are probably not going to be as good. And that's a difficult decision. Um, One thing that I also wanted to note is if you do extend Hyman, you probably still do it after the Seattle expansion draft because he's one fewer player you have to protect as long as he's unsigned until then. Um, There is some modest risk associated with that just because he's getting closer to unrestricted free agency. And he might be more willing to try it and run up a bidding war, but let's not worry about that. If you assume we lose Travis Dermott to Seattle, let's just take that as a given. And then you give Zach Hyman, I'm going to say $5 million a year. Now, guessing at contracts is kind of a mugs game. I'm going partly off Alex Ayafalo, who just signed at four years at $4 million. For the Los Angeles Kings, I think Zach Hyman is better. I'm giving him some more money. Let's say you do that. And let's say you extend Alex Galchenyuk at, you know, a million and a half. And you hope he doesn't regress into back what he was before this this little resurgence. You're running a bottom six that looks very lean. You know, everyone is real cheap. You're running a third pair that is probably Sandin and Liljegren or Sandy and Liljegren slash old guy who's cheap. And you're running Jack Campbell as your starter along with a 1B-ish guy. All of those have consequences. Like, the team is probably worse next year. Um, Just by virtue of you doing this, because you're a little shallower. 
and your goaltending's a little bit less reliable. Right. And you can look at this roster and you'd be like, okay, there, there's, you know, it's not a roster without merits. The top two lines are absolutely frightening for anyone who would want to face mm-hmm. them. The, the top four is the same top four as this year. Like, the core of it is good. It is an injury away from absolute disaster, though. An injury to the, to the wrong people. Yes. And it's a real top-heavy issue. And so you're counting on Kyle Dubas to play the bargain bin game well. And I think he's done a pretty good job of it. Jason Spezza, for example, has been dynamite. But again, that was an advantage that came with Jason Spezza just wanting to play here. And there have been plenty of players who were much discussed who didn't turn into all that much. That's how the grab bag works. That's not a failure of the Leafs, per se. Because if they were clearly going to be very good, they would make a lot more money than 700 k or a million dollars a year. It's just... I think that it's sort of a balance between you have to recognize there are real downsides either way you go here. Like, you're either accepting a lot of uncertainty with a team that is trying to win now, or you are accepting the likelihood that the Zach Hyman contract certainly ends badly, but the possibility that it even matures badly within a couple of years. And as much as I love Zach Hyman, I respect his work ethic, I know that he will do everything that he can to be as effective as long as he can. There are plenty of really good players of whom that's true, who have given it their all and have nonetheless been very ineffective by age 31, 32. Um, Yeah, I, I mean, I've made myself sad, actually, through my ranting here. Um, but I really do think that, uh, this is going to be a a big decision. And I think Kyle Dubas is going to do what he can to resign Zach Hyman. I think Zach Hyman, all else being equal, would like to resign, but you never know what'll happen if he goes to market and there's someone willing to really overpay him. In which case, Kyle Dubas will just have to let that person take on the winner's curse. It's a very difficult decision. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a decision that you're making trade-offs no matter what. And that's just the, the reality of it. And, and part of what we need to, to mitigate that is someone like, say, Nick Robertson to be really, really, really good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as a related thing, you know, Sandy and Liljegren, it's getting about time to kind of see what they've got, to be honest with you. Like... So I, I do kind of get the, the winners to promote them. But at the same time, that's a very young, inexperienced pairing. You'd better hope that they're ready. And the Leafs have kind of consciously shied away from overplaying them by making moves like signing Zach Bogosian and getting Ben Hutton as injury insurance. Like, they've they've decided that they don't want it to happen this year. If you resign Zach right. Hyman, you'd better be expecting it to happen next year. Yeah, like the, the Leafs have, they consciously decide to pay draft capital to avoid the situation of playing either Sandine or Lodegren. Yes, and that's... That's telling. Yeah, and concerning, frankly. I think that Timothy Lilligren, if he doesn't make the NHL in a full-time way next year, there are serious questions about when it's going to happen. And I've been relatively optimistic about him. I think he will, but we are approaching put-up-or-shut-up time. And... The people who watch the Marlies speak very highly of him. They say that he's he's looked good this season. They think that he's really matured as a defensive player. That's all great. 
we are nearing the point where he should be showing it in the NHL. And the team isn't ready to do it yet. Uh, you hope they're ready to do it next year. Because again, this is where you start to feel the pinch of draft picks that you either don't have or didn't use as effectively as you would have liked or whatever else. Because you need those guys coming in who are contributing on cheap deals that are 900 k so that you can pay players like Zach Hyman what they cost on the free on uh, the free agent market. Um, you know, th- this has sort of been done to death, but you're looking at uh, teams like Colorado, who are totally dominant right now. Well, they're playing they're playing Kale McCarr at a Norris level, and he's making eight hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year. It, it is a huge benefit for a team in Toronto's position to get good con. Uh, good contributions out of players on entry-level contracts. And I know that we've done that to death, but I do feel like it ties into the Zach Hyman discussion of, okay, how are you going to get a viable team that is very cheap other than its top players? To your point on Lilligren, uh, I think Tyler Dello uh, looked at this when he was working at The Athletic. He, he found something to the effect of that the number of NHL defensemen who make the NHL and are actual kind of somewhat actual difference makers mm-hmm. in the NHL and were not already there by like age 22 is small. Yeah. Not already in the NHL to be clear. Right. It, 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 that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Yeah. I think well, but, people look at Justin Hall and they think, Oh, well he bloomed way later than that. Yeah. But Justin Hall is exceptional. Like how many players have matured into actual top four ish, at least in ice time defensemen after having been in the ECHL a couple of years earlier. That's just not a common development path. And, you know, I, I like Timothy Lilligren. He is about to turn 22. So next year should kind of be a showtime for him. Um, yeah. I, I, I pretty, pretty much. Yeah. I, I know that we haven't probably cheered anyone's spirits with this because the basic answer is no matter what you do with Zach Hyman, it is a fraught decision and the team is possibly going to be worse. I think if you want some sort of encouraging spin on it, Cal Dubas has recognized that this year is a big window for the Toronto Maple Leafs to try and make a run, and he's acted accordingly. So I certainly see how he came to the decision he made at the trade deadline. Let's hope it pays out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I think that's just about everything we we wanted to discuss this week. Do you have anything else in mind? I don't, no. Great. So... Thank you to everyone for listening. You can catch all of Mind and Food and stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on RV, uh, on RV at, at Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter at RV and AT Fuldeman. Uh One of those days, I guess. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>